The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Paul, the awesome apostle and writer of so much of the New Testament, said as such, he said, pray for me. Pray that I would have boldness. Pray that there would be open doors. Pray that there would be opportunity uh, for the gospel to be preached. And one of the places where he highlighted, where he focused his uh, gospel ministry was, interestingly enough, at an incredibly strategic church uh, in the main city of the world at that time, Rome, that Paul hadn't been there. And he, by the power of the Spirit, sent this letter that we now call Romans to the church. And he said, church, I want you to get the gospel. I want you to understand it fully, to appropriate it into your life in such a way uh, that it becomes part of your spiritual DNA, uh, that it guides, directs, motivates, informs how you live personally, how you, uh, how you live your life both in the private and in the public sectors of how you engage in life together as a church body but also how you go out into the world and you share the good news uh, of the gospel with the world around. You do realize that's the purpose of why we gather together, right? That we are not here just to hang out uh, a little bit on Sunday mornings, have some fun programs on Sunday nights, maybe get together for a cookout every now and then and go, this is great. We are here for the express purpose of seeing more and more people within the Hilton Head and Bluffton areas and through us around the world come to give their lives in faith to Christ Jesus and proclaim Him as King. That's our purpose and goal, exclusively. So what you're doing here this morning and what Paul would be saying to you this morning, what I'm saying is this, I want you to grow in your understanding of who Christ is, to know Christ. I want you to take advantage of opportunities that are afforded to you to know Christ more fully, either be it in uh, the various ministries that we have or other things that are around in this area or in your private devotional life, but to know him more fully so that you can make him known, so that you have a witness to the world uh, around you, that we have a witness to the world around us. Well, what Paul has been harping on lately Uh, in this letter. The first part is he explained, and we've talked about it each week, he's explained the gospel. He says, I believe the gospel is the the power of God for salvation unto the Jew first and then to the Greek, Uh, that it is the very power of God to transform the life of the individual, uh, to justify them, to change them forever uh, from one who was outside of the kingdom of God into a citizen of the kingdom of God. Uh, And I'm not ashamed of that. Uh, For I believe it wholeheartedly that it is the absolute motivating factor of my life. And though there will be moments when my emotions betray me, there will be moments uh, when obstacles come in front of me. This is what drives me. And, And it is pushing me forward, Paul says, in all of these things. And I want the church to understand it. And so he began to preach this to the church. And he said, church, you have to understand something first and foremost. The gospel doesn't make any sense if you don't understand a just and righteous and holy God. It doesn't make any sense if you don't believe that you need it. If there's a need for you uh, to come this table this morning, to come and to celebrate communion, the Lord's table, His sacrifice together, makes no sense 
It's a wonderful religious exercise. It's something nice. It makes you feel good. It's something that you're excited about and you like, but it's not something that absolutely grips you deeply and moves you even to a point of tears uh, of in front of it going, this is how much my Savior loved me, that he was willing to be bruised and stricken and smitten and die on a cross for me, a death that I deserved. And I gain a life that I never deserved. So Paul was saying, you've got to understand the righteousness of God, his perfections, before you can understand the glory and the beauty of the salvation that we've been given in Christ. And then it's later in chapter 12 that he gets to the now, therefore, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. He gets into the how to live later. What he's doing now is talking about uh, the orthodoxy, the, the truth, the, the reality, your theological framework, your worldview. This is what motivates you. This is what you understand. This is when someone asks you, uh, what's your purpose here in this world? What do you believe in more than anything else? What is at your baseline denominator? What's there that you say, this is it? And they say, well, why aren't you doing this? It's because of my belief system in Jesus Christ that motivates me to do or to not do this. But this is what I believe. It is your orthodoxy first, then your orthopraxy. What you believe informs how you live. Too often we reverse those things. And so Paul's coming in today and he's finishing this long section. And I must say that I'm very thankful that he's finishing this long section on wrath and justice. Because not only is it difficult to preach, it's incredibly convicting to study. And to mill over day and day to day and realize how lost and sinful and on my own my heart loves to run. And so we're going to read together from chapter 3, verse 9, all the way down to the end of this section into chapter 3, verse 20. The word of the Lord. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Father, would you now bless your word? Pour out your spirit, teach us, where we come humble before you, that you would guide and direct. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. This is the very word of the Lord. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greek, are under sin as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned away. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. Today we're just going to look at a couple of things that are laid out there for us. One is simply this. We're all in the same boat. 
Humanity is all in the same boat. Every human being of every time, uh, at every point in time, in every pit of history, in every country, in every society is in the same boat. And that boat isn't a good boat to be in. It's a boat of complete and utter lostness. But the Paul's argument here and the scripture's argument is this. All of us are equally lost in this world. Equally lost in our natural state outside of Christ. Therefore, we need redemption. So how is it that we are saved? Is it through the law? Is it through works of the law? Is it through our own righteousness? Or is it through something else, some other means? So that's basically what we're going to look at this morning. So the first thing is simply this. We're all in the same boat. Verse 9 says that everyone, Jew and Greek, Uh, is under the power of sin, in the dominion of sin, is what he's saying. That in the natural state, it doesn't matter, moral or immoral, religious or irreligious, we are all in the natural condition under the power and the dominion of sin, equally lost in that situation. That it doesn't matter about the lifestyle. But what he's saying is church people and non-church people, religious people and irreligious people, uh, those who are rankly immoral by, as what we define as immorality and those who are moral by what we define as morality, uh, they are all equally lost in the midst of this. And the reason that Paul would say that is he had a split audience. He had an audience of good church folks who were saying, well, I may be a little lost, but I wasn't as bad as those folks. The rank pagans over there across the aisle. Now those people really needed a, a big savior and a big cross because they were a mess. And he, they would just list the things. I mean, look at what they did. I mean, they voted Democrat last election. Uh, they believe in big government. Uh, they believe in social norms that I don't believe in. They uh, allow their kids to drink underage. They don't really care about morality uh, in the world today. Oh, they're just terrible, terrible people. And they need the gospel, a big gospel. Now, I, I mean, I needed Jesus, but I'm a pretty good person. I, I'm, I'm conservative. I'm middle class to upper class. I'm, I'm generally white and educated and doing really well. Uh, and I don't do all of those things in excess. I mean, everybody does them. I mean, of course. But I don't do them in excess. And so I know I'm a lot better off than those people over there. Moral, immoral, religious, irreligious, political differentiations, social differentiations, economic differentiations. Paul is saying this in deep theological terminology. I want you to write this down. It's a bunch of hooey. He says it's a bunch of junk. What we need to understand at the beginning of all of this is that we are all equally lost before God, without hope, save in Jesus Christ, period. The doctrine is called the doctrine of total depravity. It's a theological doctrine that says all humanity, uh, born into sin, born under the power of sin, that even that little child that is born is under the power of sin and in need of redemption by Jesus Christ and the power of his blood and the cross applied to the life of the individual. That every individual, it doesn't matter who, That every individual, there's no spark of hope within them. There's no spark of life within them. They just need a little bit of good good parenting and good this and good that. And it'll just burst into flame and into some righteousness in their own. But all are equally condemned. All humanity is. And people hate that doctrine. You probably don't like that doctrine. But the reason that that doctrine is so important, one, is it's biblical. 
And two, it informs everything else. You, you don't understand the cross. You don't understand anything. You don't understand how salvation happens. Do we choose God or does God choose us? Were we elected before the foundation of the world or did we on our own come to God in our own accord and do it on our own and God looked into the future, saw that we were going to choose him and so therefore he elected us uh, in that way. Total depravity informs all that we said. It says this, all are equally lost and none sought God. No, not one. So therefore, how would anyone be saved except if God in his great mercy was the initiator of salvation to those who would believe? You know what else total depravity does? As one writer put it, it rehumanizes humanity for us. What it does is it takes away our ability to look down on anyone. That we can look at the worst person that we can think of. Uh, we can look, if we lived in a culture, more of a metro culture, that you could look and you could see the prostitute walking on the street or the homeless man who's asleep. Uh, or the thief, or the beggar, whomever it is, you could see that person. You could see the biggest jerk uh, in the penthouse suite. You could see all of those people, and you would look at them with a deep humanity. It says, I was as lost or worse than they, and I will treat them with dignity, and I will treat them with respect, and I will treat them with a profound hope. That if the gospel of Jesus Christ could change my sinful and horrible lost heart, then it has the ability to change theirs. And that fast, that person could be my moral, spiritual, or intellectual superior. That fast. Because it's based on God, not on me or that person. And so it rehumanizes people for us. It makes us look around, even in our own culture, here on the island and in Bluffton, to look at people who are different than us. And to look at them with a deep humanity of respect, of love and concern, and a broken heart that says those who live in 10,000 square feet and those that live in 100 square feet are equally lost and their houses won't save them. At the end of the day, only Christ can. Those who speak our language and those who don't, their only hope is Christ. And I will give all that I have to reach them because God gave all that he had to reach me and held nothing back. Do you see how it rehumanizes us? It takes away a platform of judgment towards one another. And it's radical in its nature in that way. It goes farther than any humanitarian uh, centeredness would ever do. It leads us in that way. And so what we see is that everyone is under this power of sin as one preacher put it, it's the egalitarianism of sin. It's all equal, that we're equally in that way. And so if we're under the power of sin and we're equally lost, then how do we get out of this? What's the problem? What is the, really the root of the problem? Most of us would say the root of the problem, if you're coming this morning and you're investigating Christianity at all, that maybe you're tipping your toe back in, you've been in church and you're coming back and you're wondering, most of you are thinking something like this, religion, Christianity is a lifestyle. And if I do this and don't do that, then God is obligated to do this and to do that for me. And therefore, I will approach God in a way that says, I will begin to live differently. Therefore, he will love me. Uh, I will change my behavior. I will modify that. I will do this and I won't do that. I'll go to church and I won't uh, go to brothels. I'll stop getting drunk. I'll start giving more to the poor. I'll quit cursing. 
I'll start doing this. I'll start doing that. I'll stop doing this. Parents, grandparents, can you modify the behavior of your children in your home? Yes or no? Can you? Oh, whoa, whoa. Absolutely, I can modify the behavior of people in my house. Buddy, that room better be clean or you do not get to go out for a month. You know what I'm going to have? And a ridiculously clean room. Because I can modify his behavior by saying, do this. You, you know that your behavior can be modified when you're traveling at 75 miles an hour in a 60 zone and the state trooper comes and gives you a ticket. Guess what your behavior is going to be at least for the next mile? You're going to drive the speed limit. It will modify. I can modify behavior, but I cannot modify the heart. And so what Paul comes here, interestingly enough, and and he begins and he says, the problem is this, we're all equally lost, but here's the problem. The problem is not behavioral. And he uses this in parentheses in this section. He says, here's the problem. The problem is in verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, and no one seeks God. And then in verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes, parentheses. He says the real problem, the root of the problem, the primary problem for all of humanity, us included, is that we have a ruined relationship with God. That our relationship with God is ruined at its very core. The problem isn't behavioral. The problem is whether or not we fear the Lord, whether or not we believe in him, whether or not he is the very center of our lives. It is relational in that respect, vertically. That we, uh, we believe uh, that God is at that point at the very center. You see, the biblical perspective says no one's righteous. No one seeks God. No fear of God. As one person put it, the spiritual trajectory of it all is incredibly self-focused. Both for the moral and the immoral person. Both for the religious and the irreligious person. It's ridiculously self-focused. And here's what it looks like for the person who says there is no law. I can live however I want to live. The center of their world is themselves. That if it makes me feel good, I can do it. If it makes me feel bad, I won't do it as much. If I like what you're doing, then I will condone it. If I don't like what you're doing, I won't condone it. But I am at the very center of it all. I determine reality. I determine truth in the middle of that. And most church people would go, here, here. That's the problem with the world today. Here's the problem with church people. Said it to you before. You're heading home. After church today, you've signed up for a small group, you gave a tithe, uh, you came, you worshipped, you even went to a 360 seminar, you moved over, you obeyed, and you slid over and gave your space to somebody else, you're a good person, you parked across the street and even walked uh, across the ditch uh, to get here this morning. You did good things today, and that's awesome, and Wednesday morning, men, you're going to get up, and you're coming on Wednesday morning, and women, you're getting up on Thursday, and you're coming, and that's awesome, and you've got a life group going on, and teenagers are going to youth group, and kids are going to children's stuff. This is great, and you go around, and you get in a wreck on one of our roundabouts on your way home from church today, or someone steals your wallet at lunch today. You know what's going to be exposed very, very quickly? Is the ridiculous self-centeredness of your religious actions. Wait, whoa, 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 God. I just did all this stuff for you, and this is what I get? 
What do you mean I'm getting a ticket? What do you mean this happened to me? What do you mean that my child is in rebellion? What do you mean that my marriage is falling apart? What do you mean that I have cancer? What do you mean that this is happening to me? What do you mean I have been a good person? I have followed you and I have done all that I've been asked to do. You didn't hold up your end of the bargain. Do you see what happens in those moments? Our hearts are exposed of how ridiculously self-centered the trajectory really is. Folks, when things catastrophic or even just simple bad things happen, they give you such an incredible opportunity to learn about your heart if you'll take advantage of it. To pause and to say, God, what am I supposed to learn about you in the middle of this situation? And what am I supposed to learn about me here? If you'll pause and not just endure ask, you'll find out so often that the greatest problem that we have, the primary problem that we have is a ruined relationship with God, not behavioral or ruined relationships with other people. Those are a problem. That's the second thing that he talks about there in the middle. Inside the parentheses in verses 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, inside those parentheses, he said, here's your other problem. Your other problem is your relationships are falling apart. You're using your mouths for venom. You're you're using your life and your words to bring death instead of life. Uh, You're doing all of these different things, your actions, everything. No one does good. No one does good. At the end of the day, it's self-centered. And the problem is, and the result in verse 19 says that everyone, the whole world, is held liable. The word they use is accountable, but it's a judicial term. Everyone is held liable. Everyone. So what do we do? How do we get out of this? For some people, they'll run right back to the very thing that they think is going to fix it, and they're going to run to the law. And we've said over and over, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I need to mention it, that how are we saved? How are we redeemed? How do we fix these problems that we're facing? It's not by running to the law and doing more things. It's not becoming more religious. It's not double downing on your morality. Uh, It's not putting all your chips in on being a better person. It's not stopping and getting rid of all of your vices. It's not that. Paul says, we know. We know that the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. There are three purposes for for the law. Uh, But the one that he's highlighting here is the purpose of the law is a mirror. It it is a forceful taskmaster, schoolmaster who drives us to Christ, exposing our sin, exposing our heart. I've used this example before, and I want to use it quickly. If we go out today uh, and we have a church-wide pluff mud wrestling match, and and we finish, if you're visiting from out of town, pluff mud is the stinky, soft stuff uh, that shows up at low tide in the marshes. It's thick and it's nasty. It's cool at some level if you like playing in mud. But one thing is it gets all over you. So if we had this big uh, church-wide pluff mud battle and we came then back into the church and we had huge mirrors set up and the mirrors, you stood in front of the mirrors, what would the mirror show you about yourself? What would it, what would it show you had on your body? Pluff mud, Right? And so any reasonable person would then walk up to the mirror and start rubbing against it, right? Or you'd even take, you'd be more aggressive. You would take a big mirror and you'd just rub it all over your body, right? Because that's how you would cleanse yourself. That's how you would get rid of the mud, right? No, that's silly. 
the mirror's purpose was to show you your need of cleansing. It just simply showed you that you were dirty. The law, one of the functions, and the function he mentions here, the purpose of the law is to show you your sinfulness, not to fix you. The purpose of the law is to show you your desperate need of Jesus Christ and his perfect righteousness. So don't go running back to the law and say, I'm going to clean myself with these Ten Commandments. If I just stop cussing and lying and doing and all of this stuff, if I just do works law, then I'll be cleansed. How silly. If it was silly for us to run to mirrors covered in pluff mud, how silly is it for the sinner covered and permeated through with sin to run to the law to think they're going to get cleansed? But so many of us do. We double down on the law. And we try to just be better and better. And Paul says that's not how you're saved. The law, the law reveals our need of Christ. And next week we're going to be jumping in with this incredible good news of saying, but now, verse 21, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's the hope. The law drives us to Christ. The law points us to this table. It exposes these things in us and leads us to Christ. And so we fall and claim him alone. I'm going to give you an illustration that I want you to take with you today. They're printed and they're in the back of the worship center. The ushers will be handing it out uh, as you leave. Uh, I've called this over the course of time napkin theology because I've written it on more napkins and more coffee shops uh, around the country. I didn't come up with this as it was explained to me, but this sort of explains what we need to understand This is how you take the gospel, apply it to your heart every single day. You preach it to your heart daily, moment by moment, uh, that you see these things. And what you find is at conversion, you realize something at conversion. You realize God was holy, you weren't holy, uh, and you needed to get right with God. And so you said, I believe in Jesus Christ. I place my faith in Him and in Him alone, uh, and that's how I'm going to be saved. And so you begin to see Christ in your need in that way. And over the course of time, it should be growing this way. But what really begins to happen is this. As you're a babe in Christ, what you see as you're growing is you're realizing, gosh, I studied the Sermon on the Mount and I found uh, that God is really concerned about my anger. He's really concerned about my little white lies. He's concerned about so much more. So the trajectory of his holiness is on an upward uh, trajectory. Now, did God get more holy? No, your understanding of his holiness just expanded. You learned more about him as you grew. Well, guess what you learned about yourself? As you've been self-introspective of yourself and you know your heart and you're honest with your heart, have you found that your heart's got some pretty disgusting stuff in it? Anybody find that about your own heart? Yeah, I find some things in my heart and I hear it. Sometimes I hear it come out and other times I just hear it rattling around and going, don't come out. Don't say it like if I don't say it, it won't be true. But then I realized my heart celebrates some of the worst things. It laughs at things that it shouldn't. It is so deep and messed up. And so I see more of my sinfulness. See, Paul, over the course of his life, described himself early on as the least of the apostles. And by the end of his ministry, he described himself as the chief among sinners. Did Paul become a worse person? I would imagine Paul's piety and his holiness by the end of his life was off the charts. But his self-knowledge was oh. Because he realized something, what I've learned about myself is to repent both of my irreligious acts, but also of my religious acts. I repent of the pride mixed in both of those things, of the why I do anything. I repent of them all. And so we should be growing in that way. But what happens so often for many of us is this. 
that we become pretenders. We look at cheap grace. We look and we mess up. How many of you guys messed up this week? Anybody mess up this week? Biblically speaking? Yeah. You know how you made yourself feel better about it? Probably at some level. It was one of two ways. The first way is probably like this. Well, God's really not all that concerned about that. It was only four miles an hour of speed limit. He's got bigger fish to fry. I didn't kill anybody. I only looked a little longer than I should have at that person. It was just a thought that came to my head. He's not that bothered by it. So we lower his perfect standard of love. He's not as holy and just as he really is. Or we do something like this. Okay, fine. I messed up. I'll own it. I messed up. But I'm not as bad as him. You go look in the paper and you go, hey, I may be bad, but at least I'm not. And you fill in the blank. I'm not that person. I'm not as bad as that horrible person. I'm not Hitler. I mean, my gosh, I'm not Stalin. Uh, I'm not this person or that person. I'm not as bad as. And so you fiddle with the record and you make it so that you're not as bad as you really are. Well, you know what happens to the cross in the middle of that? It gets a lot smaller. The cross isn't very large for someone who hasn't have a very holy God or isn't a very unrighteous individual. But for someone who's really growing and prospering in their faith, what they really begin to see is a new identity in Christ. They see that God's so much holier than I ever dared dream. And I'm worse than I ever wanted to admit. But Christ, His cross, it's so huge. It's bigger than I ever dared dream. And I'm in awe that how this God could love me and was willing to send his son. What's missing from this is on every one of those crosses should be a heart. And here's the kicker. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Your heart and your ability to love God and your willingness to love God and your ability and willingness to love other people is tied to the size of the cross in your life. If you have a little cross, then you have a little heart. And you won't be generous. And you won't be forgiving. And you won't be willing to lay down your life for someone else because you didn't need much in your own life. Why could God call you to that much in, in His kingdom? But if you realize the expanse of what has happened to you. And God says, Bill, I want you to love that person. Bill, I want you to forgive Lisa today of what she hurt you with. But she was wrong. She wasn't. She has been. And I go, no. She was wrong. I want my rights. She really hurt me. And I want to I want to take out a pound of flesh on this one. I'm going to hold back love from her. And I'm going to make her pay. Preach the cross to your heart. And guess what you'll find? Oh, I've done so much more to my heavenly Father and his perfect justice and my sinful heart and he sent the cross into my life that is so large. How could I withhold forgiveness from anybody else? if I've been forgiven this much in my own life? How could I withhold love from someone else? How could I withhold my generosity of my time and care for someone else? Folks, this table will only get large 
as you appropriate the truth explained in the scriptures and, and explained a bit in that outline. So today, as we come now to the table, we come in this way. I hope it's to a very large cross growing in your life and our desperate need. Let's pray.